Alright church, if you have a Bible, or a tablet, or a phone, or something with the Word of God this morning. We are continuing in our series in Mark's Gospel. There we go. Alright. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And uh, I'm, I'm about ready to throw you a curveball this morning. Church, we're, we're in Mark's Gospel, we'll be in chapter 12, beginning in verse 35, but as I was singing uh, this morning, I sensed in my spirit, I, I hope from the Holy Spirit, that, um, that some of us are not ready to hear the Word of God. You, you've sung the songs, and you've sung that Jesus is your everything, and yet... Perhaps like this pastor, sometimes when you sing it, you're convicted. Maybe that's just me this morning. That sometimes Jesus isn't our everything. Sometimes we're holding on to sins or attitudes or behaviors that prevent us from hearing the word of God. Sometimes we come and we sit under the word and we say, well, I, I didn't get anything out of that message or I didn't hear anything today. And as much as the preacher prays and tries, ultimately, if we come to the word blocked up, we're not going to hear anything. And I don't want to waste your time or mine this morning. So I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to give an invitation before the sermon. I'm going to invite you where you sit right now, whatever it is, whatever thought, behavior, attitude that you're hanging on to that's preventing you from being able to truly sing wholeheartedly, Jesus, you're my everything. I want to invite you to just take it to the Lord right now. You might need to stand up and walk across the room and apologize to somebody. I have no idea. But we're going to hear from heaven today. So we're going to start with an invitation. You, you may want to come and pray here. You may want to stand and say, I acknowledge before God I'm one of those people who's been hanging on to a thought or an attitude or a behavior or a desire that, that, that doesn't please God. Wherever it is, whatever it is, I invite you to sitting or standing, raising your hand, acknowledging before God, I need to hear from heaven and I want to get out of the way. Would you pray with me? God, I'm standing because I'm the pastor. But I'm also standing as one who has clay feet, just like every other person who's walked in this room. God, there's nothing that I have that I have not received from your generous hand. There's nothing that you've given to me that I deserve or that I earned. And God, the world is powerful in its attraction. It is powerful in its delusion. God, the world seduces us Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We arrive on Sunday and we are desperate to hear a word from God. So God, as we begin this time of hearing from you, let us hear from you. 
And Jesus, give us the liberty to release whatever it is that is blocking us from hearing from you this morning. Let us truly hear from heaven. God, I, I pray that you would motivate, animate, transform, change your church today in the hearing of the word of God. God, I don't, I don't need to be heard. It is not me that these, these beautiful people need to hear. They need to hear from you. So God, I ask that you would forgive our sins. That you would cleanse us from unrighteousness. That you would deliver us from our presumptiveness. And God, that you would lead us into deep gospel waters this morning. For your sake and for your glory, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning in verse 35, is where we will be this morning. As you're turning there, I want to remind you of the context. It's Passover week. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to be God's once and for all Passover lamb, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world and who ends the need for sacrifice. Sadly, as you will recall, the religious leaders have done a poor job of preparing people for Jesus' arrival. They've made religion about themselves, and as a result, they have adopted an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. You see, if you think you're kind of a big deal, then you don't make a very big deal of Jesus. If you think, well, I kind of had it going on and Jesus just showed up to help me along the way rather than to radically transform your life, then you, uh, you underestimate your need for Christ and you also underestimate the deliverance that he gives. So after Jesus overturns the money changers tables in an act of judgment against the temple, he's faced a day of questions in the temple, a, a day of relentless questions, all questions that try and trip him up and undermine his authority. In fact, their first question is, Jesus, where did you get your authority? Where did it come from? And then the next question is, should we pay taxes to Caesar or to not? You are a king after all, right? And then, is the resurrection real? And then, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus declares that the two greatest commandments are to love God and love neighbor. And then the questions are over. You remember a few weeks ago when I was preaching verse 34? No one would venture to ask him any more Questions, But Jesus has only just begun to teach. He feels their questions. He answers their questions. He proves his authority. But as Ralph Martin quipped, after a day of questions comes the question of the day. And when Jesus turns the tables again by being the one receiving questions to the one now asking them, he does it so that he can graciously prove to us that he alone is our hope. Would you hear now the word of God? And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. And now here's the question. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Wouldn't you have enjoyed listening to Jesus? Just flipping the tables and showing those scribes who's boss. I would have enjoyed that. Verse 38. In his teaching, he was saying, 
Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned. All she had to live on. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, motivate us because of who you are this morning. Help us to worship you. God, we were poor and you gave us your riches. We had no standing and you allowed us to stand. God, we had nothing to live for and you gave us life. Help us to sing and to say and to believe and to live that you are our everything. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I believe we see in this passage this reality. When we understand that Jesus is the Lord, that he is God, that he is king, that he is ruler, that he is savior, that he is not created, but that he is from the beginning and he entered time and space to deliver us. When we really wrap our minds around who God is, here's what happens in our life. One, we will be on guard against being motivated by the privileges of religious appearances. The world puts on a good show. Everybody acts like they've all got it together when they get on the plane at the tarmac at the Roanoke, Roanoke uh, Airport. When they're going about their day, everybody puts a smile on their face. Everybody acts like they've got it all together. But on the inside, people are dying for an answer that is bigger than themselves. Then just there's another guy out there. Because there is somebody that's bigger than another guy. And bigger even than just the son of David. It's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from him we have no salvation. We can do nothing. So we've got to be on guard against being motivated. By the privileges of religious appearances. And secondly we've got to embrace our poverty. And gladly give God our all. In verse 35, Jesus asks the question. It's basically this question, the same question he asked of his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And in order to ask that question this time, he identifies a problem in Psalm 110 verse 1 that he's quoting from in verse 36. The problem in Psalm 110, verse 1, is of course not with Scripture, but with the scribes. The problem is with the assumption of the religious leaders. The scribes are looking for a son of David, a human king, who's going to come and say, Good job, guys. Y'all are great. And now I'm here, and your greatness can go on forever. 
But you see, in Psalm 110, David, writing in the Spirit, meaning under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he does not say, the Lord said to my son, but he says, the Lord said to my Lord. And do you see what Jesus is getting at? Who in the world, what father calls his son his Lord, much less his far off grandson his Lord? And oh, by the way, how is the Lord speaking to his Lord, who is also his son? What in the world is going on here? And this son is going to have a victory. He's going to vanquish his enemies, according to verse 36. So in one verse, we've got the Trinity. You ever heard people say the Trinity is not in the Bible? I can't find the word Trinity in the Bible. Well, can you find the Lord and then David's Lord who is his son and then the Holy Spirit in one verse? Absolutely. Absolutely you can. The, whole, the Holy Spirit inspired David to write a verse about the Lord God who is in a conversation with David's son who is also the Lord God. So you've got Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity, right there in verse 36. Thank you, Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> So what does this mean? It means that God's salvation requires more than a human son. It wasn't enough for a human being to come and give us a good example of what it is to please God. We needed God himself to come and save us. You see, Jesus didn't come to validate the appearance of righteousness. He came to give us the very righteousness of God. He is God of God. He is the eternally begotten Son of the Father, sent to live and die and be raised in our place. And He's ascended at the right hand of the Father, interceding for His people, His church. And He's leading us and empowering us and filling us with His Spirit to advance His kingdom until He comes. And He says all of that in verse 36. What a Savior. I love what D.A. Carson says. The teacher who never attended the right schools confounds the greatest theologians in the land. You see, church, when we see that Jesus is God, we understand that no one less than God himself could rescue us. And when we really understand that it is God who has to save us, then we no longer care about impressing people with our self-righteousness. We don't care what people think when we walk in the door. We don't care if we have our lives put together or if we're desperate for somebody greater than us because that's where life is when you recognize your desperation apart from Christ. When we really understand the miracle that God came down to save us, then we long to live for Christ who is our righteousness. And because we recognize that Christ is our hope, not the appearance that we have it all together, then the first thing we will do is we will be on guard against being motivated by the privileges of religious appearance. You say, well, I don't understand. What's the privilege? Some of you like to cover up your desperation and just keep it private. You like your privacy. Don't mess with me. I don't want to talk about it. Don't meddle. I don't ever want to have a prayer request that's serious. We'll just hang out on the physical needs. My, my fingernail's hurting this morning. If you'd pray for my fingernail, I'd appreciate it. And while we're praying for your fingernail, you are being robbed of the opportunity to expose your heart to God's people and let them mend your soul as the Holy Spirit of God works through them to speak truth into your life and to remind you that your identity is in Christ. And if Christ be yours, then God be praised. That will be your defense on the day of judgment. Amen. 
And because Jesus is God in our place, we've got to beware, verse 38, beware of people who want to take God's place. Beware is a continuous command. It comes from a word that means to look or to see. We've got to keep looking out for people who practice their religion in order to be seen or to have influence. The scribes are not motivated by gratitude to God, but by latitude with other people. They do what they can, verse 40, for appearances' sake. If they can keep up the appearance, then people will look to them like they should be looking to God. But we would never do that, right, church? We would never fall into that trap. We would never pretend to have it all together and be a wreck on the inside. Or, or maybe we, maybe we would. What if this morning we got behind the appearances? What if I handed you a big old black Sharpie and a poster board and a yarn to tie it around your neck and you wrote on your poster what's really on the inside of your heart this morning? What would your poster board say? Would it say depressed? Anxious? Financially floundering, divorced, and guilty, angry, addicted, neglecting my spouse, running the rat race, doubting, frustrated, confused, stuck, tired of faking it, and ready for the real thing. You see, church, we can look good on the outside. Put on my sport coat this morning. Look real nice. But good appearances and the praise of men never cure the cancers that cripple the human soul. The lasting joy that you were made for comes not from what people think about you when they look at you, but what you can confidently know when you are looking to Christ as your only sure hope. None of us this morning, church, is a scribe, but we are all tempted to rely on appearance rather than the righteousness of Christ. This comes out in all sorts of ways. It comes out when we have to tell other people how long we've been a deacon or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. For others, it comes out when we compare ourselves to others rather than compare ourselves to Christ. Well, I might be bad, but I'm not that bad. You see that lady. At least I'm not her. I mean, if you want to feel good about yourself, right, you just go to Walmart. <laughs> you just look around and make fun of other people. And how long does that last? You walk out of Walmart and you're just a wreck like everybody else was. For others, it's a plastic smile. It's an unwillingness to open up to others about our sin and struggles because we're afraid of what they might think. Or, get this church, if we deal with the sin that we know is there, then we've given the Spirit of God the opportunity to show us the next one that we don't even realize is down there. Ooh, then he might find one more. And then he might just rip the band-aid off. 
And he might really start exposing the wicked unrighteousness of my heart and showing me just how awesome it is that Christ left heaven to die for that mess so that I can be redeemed and reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. But we would rather keep putting on the long robes of religious appearances because we don't want to get real with God. We don't, got to re- we don't want Him to get down in the crevices of our heart and do real spiritual business. And so we put on our religious appearances. But if we are honest this morning, some of us are exhausted and terribly unfulfilled because we keep putting on the religious robes of righteousness and neglecting the glory of Christ who is my righteousness. Now, I've got some good news for you, church. Jesus came to free you. From being a slave to the approval of others. He came to free you from the damning idea that appearing more righteous than somebody at Walmart is enough to please a holy God. What good is the appearance of righteousness before a perfectly holy God? Isaiah says all of our righteous deeds, they're like filthy garments. Some of you this morning need to give up the game and come to Christ, who is your hope and your stay and your Savior. The scribes, unfortunately for them, they were pleased with their slavery. They liked walking around in long robes. They liked their respectful greetings. Verse 38, their attire announced that their religious status was great. Their pleasure did not come from knowing God, but from knowing that others noticed them when they walked into a room. They liked the first seats at the banquets. They had the places of honor. They had praise and position. And as a result, they had power in people's lives and they abused that power. The imagery is of them eating the houses of widows. They were pleased to fatten themselves and consume widows' houses and they covered it all up with long prayers. But God's not fooled. You see, the scribes were nothing like the God that they pretended to know. The God who emptied himself to rescue his people. Rather, the the scribes used the leverage of their power to fatten themselves even when they devoured widows' houses. Jesus has just said that the greatest commandment is to love God and love neighbor. But they loved attention and recognition. The scribes were not losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. But they were forfeiting their souls for the sake of appearances. Jesus warns us, church, that those who rely upon the appearance of righteousness rather than actually belonging to Christ our righteousness will face a greater judgment, a greater condemnation. And that should be especially troubling to us because we have the Word of God. And the greater the revelation that we have, the greater our accountability to get it right before a holy God. The scribes had every opportunity to know this king. They had every opportunity to know this Lord and to depend on him. But they were too busy scheduling their next banquet. The Bible has a lot to say about banquets and eating, by the way. You remember Luke 14? Jesus tells a parable about those who were brought into the kingdom and he likens it to a banquet and the master of the house invites people to over for a banquet and he sends out a slave and the first people that he goes to are too preoccupied with themselves and their family affairs. That's the scribes. 
They're so preoccupied with religious appearances that the king is issuing an invitation to the banquet of all banquets and they will not come. So what does the master of the house do? You remember? He says, fine, go find the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame and compel them to come in. And all the poor and the crippled and the blind the blind and the lame come in and there's still room for more. And so the master of the house sends his slave out into the highways and the hedges and the far lands and he brings even more into the kingdom. And those who were closest to Christ and had every opportunity to recognize who he was miss out on the invitation. It's not the self-righteous who go to the banquet church. It's those who would rather be poor and have God than appear to have everything put together but really have nothing that lasts. Which is why in verse 41, Mark transitions from scribes who consume widows' houses to the poor widow who gave all that she had. God is urging us, don't be like the scribes who cover up their unrighteousness with the appearance of righteousness, but be like the widow who says, I've got nothing really to give, but if I can have God, that'll be enough. So the challenge for us this morning, church, is will we give up the game? Will we stop pretending? And will we embrace our poverty and gladly give God? Are all. You see, the gospel turns the world upside down. While the scribes are concerned about how we appear to others, Mark shows us that we should really be concerned with how we appear to Jesus. Jesus does what no one, no pastor is allowed to do. You see what he does? He sits down right across from the treasury. You know, we, we in America, we like our little offerings, envelopes, and we like to keep it private, and the plate comes by, and we... Get in there real fast. Don't want anybody to know. That was not the New Testament way of giving, right? They had this big treasury. It was made of metal. And everybody could kind of hear what was going on. And, and by the way, in a lot of churches across the world, they don't pass plates, right? And keep it private. They, they stand at the end of the service after the word has been given and we've sung and we've said... We are so thankful for what we've received from God. And then there's one person that stands there with a basket. And the closing portion of the service is that everybody would come by the basket and give their best gift to God. No privacy. You say, well, I don't like that. I like to keep it private. That's fine. But Jesus sees what we give. That's the point. Jesus knows if you're pretending or if you're really going all in for him. The metal containers would ring out as money was tossed in. The more coins that you had, the more sound the treasury made. It was impressive. And let's be honest. Jesus sees giving that would make any honest pastor very, very happy. Right? I mean, look at verse 41. He saw many wealthy throwing in much. Praise the Lord! Hallelujah! We can fix the budget. We can fix our roof. We can maintain our facilities. We can secure and modernize our children's and preschool areas. We can refresh the sanctuary. We can eliminate our debt, renovate and expand that sanctuary and get running for the glory of King Jesus. Hallelujah! That's what Jesus says, right? Verse 42. 
Not quite. Why? Because Jesus isn't looking for you to support the next project. He is looking for people who are so overwhelmed with the goodness of God that the projects get funded before anybody ever has to ask. What we learn in this passage is that Jesus sees not only what we give, but He also sees the heart behind it. He sees why we give. And while I am quite confident that Jesus would be pleased if we could do everything that I just mentioned, He wants something greater than that, not from us, but for us. The reason that Jesus commends her giving is not because she gave something great. It is because she is satisfied to be filled up to overflowing with God. God wants you to know the joy of embracing your poverty, your spiritual poverty without Him, and being filled up to overflowing with Him. This is the mirror opposite of the scribes. The scribes are putting on a show. They're saying, look at us. We've got it all put together. And the widow says, I don't even have anything to give God, but I'll give it to him if I can get God instead. God wants our hearts. And the proof that he has our hearts comes when things no longer do. So Jesus calls in his disciples in verse 43. Do you see it? He says, amen, or truly I say to you. In other words... Everything Jesus says is important. And now Jesus is saying, this is really important. Listen up. While you were marveling at the wealth clanging in the treasury from the wealthy givers, I was marveling at this poor widow's gift. If you could add up all the other gifts, in fact, her penny, her little penny is still worth more than all that was given. Take her two tiny coins that barely made a sound in the treasury. They wouldn't have been enough to buy breakfast or lunch. But it is that gift that resonates in the heavens and that is recorded in the Gospels. Why does Jesus commend her gift? It's not because it's small, but because it's huge. I've heard people comment on this text, well, God can do something even with a couple of, couple of coins. Isn't God amazing? And yes, that's sort of a secondary point, but that's not the point that Jesus makes. If you want to make the point about what God can do with a little bit of giving, then you go to the five loaves and the two fish. He can multiply a little bit and make it a lot. But that is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is how big her gift is. She gave everything. She puts in all that she owns, all that she has to live on, 100% of her net worth. It is not a superficial gift made out of her surplus like the wealthy, it is all she's got. Perhaps you're thinking what I used to think when I read this passage. Because I tried to justify what I was keeping for myself or what I wasn't giving to the Lord. I know none of you would ever do that, but that's what I used to do. And I would read this passage, and, and this is a direct quote of my brain. That's scary. Wow. <laughs> Here's what I used to say to God when I read this passage. God, that's not fair. She's already poor. And that money wasn't very significant to her anyway. I know, you're more spiritual than I am. You've never said that. And one day as I was wrestling through this passage, here's what Jesus said to me. Exactly. 
Exactly. <laughs> That's how you come to Jesus. I'm already poor. Nothing I have is that significant anyway. God, take my, take my poverty and fill me with your presence. Take my unworthiness and present me spotless before the, land, before the throne of God. You see, church, the more we recognize our poverty without Christ, the less significance, significance our stuff has to us. What is all the money in the world compared to having Christ in our place? You see, church, here's the point that Jesus is making. Comfortable giving does not honor a crucified Savior. Comfortable giving does not honor a crucified Savior. Giving for appearances. Giving to keep up with the Joneses or to make the pastor happy or the church run is not why we give. We give because Christ gave His all in order to take my filthy rags and make me righteous before a holy God. And when we give out of that motivation, giving is not drudgery, it is joy. This, by the way, is why I rarely speak about tithing. You say, well, why don't you just tell everybody tithe, pastor? Here's why. Because Jesus does not commend giving from surplus. And there are some people for whom giving a tithe is just giving a surplus. It's like giving a tip to your waiter or your waitress at lunch after church. And there's other, for others, tithing is a great sacrifice. Tithing would have been a sacrifice for this widow, but she couldn't divide one or two coins into a tenth. So she just gave it all. You see, it's not about... The tithe. It's about the king. And some of you have never given a dime because you can't tithe. You say, well, I can't tithe. I won't give anything because I'm guilty, so I'll just stay guilty. And there's others of you who could give 20 or 30 or 50 or 90% of your income and you would still be able to live in your house and have your car and be fine, and yet you're stuck on 10%. And you walk in those doors and you think, well, if everybody else would just give 10%, we'd be fine. Giving is dynamic. It's not a set it and forget it. It is an integral part of you. The overflow of your joy with Christ. It is something we consistently evaluate and monitor. Because we are so grateful for our King. The reason, by the way, that the widow's gift is greater than all the others is because in making the gift, she was entrusting her entire future to God. And by the way, she was also giving us an example that pointed forward to an infinitely greater gift. Just three days later, Jesus would give himself in our place. Jesus would be the one to give it all. And in giving it all, we would get all that was His. He would free us from the curse of living for the approval of men. And He would give us His life so we could be approved before a holy God. So that we could know Jesus the way that David knew Jesus. We could call Him not just the Lord, not just the Son, but my Lord. Aren't you glad that the Lord God Almighty will be your Savior? That He will rescue your life? That you can call Him my Lord, last week, this past week, at the same time I'm working through this uh, sermon, 
Jesus must have known. I'm sure he did. We are in, in our family devotion working through the New Testament right now. And guess what story we were working through in the devotion? The story of the widow and her two mites. I can't make it up. It's exactly what happened. And on Friday, this is the devotion that I read. Will we be like the widow who entrusted her life to God? Or like the rich who trusted in their money instead? Remember, Jesus can see what is in our hearts. Jesus wants to remove your sin. He died on the cross so we could be freed from our sin and place our trust in Him. When God saves us, He gives us the Holy Spirit who makes it easier to trust God instead of worldly riches. The widow gave up a small treasure, two copper coins, and received a great reward. Jesus. What is God calling you to lay down so that you could take up Jesus, my Lord? What is God calling you to lay down so that you could take up Jesus, my Lord? Would you pray for me? Invite our instrumentalists to come as we pray. God, we cannot live as the widow lived. God, there are people all across this room who are tired of trying to keep up the appearance that they've got it all together. God, give them the faith and the courage today to release themselves from appearances and to give themselves wholly to God. Lord, I, I don't know what pain or discouragement or anxiety is in this room, but you know. And I pray, God, that as we sing, that we would not hear another sermon, that we would not be convicted in our souls this morning without doing business with God. God, give us the faith to lay whatever it is down that we need to lay down, to be filled up to overflowing with the goodness of Jesus Christ, my Lord. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.